The Athletic. Hello and welcome to the Race IndyCar podcast. On this week's show, we break down another victory for Alex Pillow. We look at what his rivals think about the possibility of beating him over the course of the rest of the season. A question we were already asking on the last episode of the pod, and now he's gone and won another race. So we'll definitely revisit that topic. We'll also talk about Colton Herter, who seemed to be in total control of his race until the last stint where everything fell apart in quite a... Uh, an unfortunately familiar way for him and also we'll take a look at Will Power's baffling weekend of shenanigans <laughs> should we call it uh, and we'll we'll definitely get into more detail on that later in the show JR I want to start by kind of just rounding off some Alex Pillow stats and getting into getting into his whole story obviously won the race uh, his average start and average finish this season is now 3.5 he has a 74 point lead in the championship he's not qualified worse than seventh or finished worse than eighth in any race this season he's got three fastest laps um, interestingly enough had two fastest laps last year as well which was equal top uh, but has already beaten that tally for this season uh, the next person has one so uh, I guess I want to kick this off JR hello by the way how are you doing I'm good man how are you uh, new, newly newly married <laughs> yeah. man on the pod. <laughs> yeah, sorry about the lack of a, a preview show for Road America, guys, but kind of had uh, it, uh, probably the one time in my life I'm going to have more important things to do than record uh, the Race IndyCar podcast. <laughs> Our audience is very important, but Jack had much, 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 much more important things to do. <laughs> yes, I did. It all went very well. Thank you very much. So so that was good. And then I uh, had a quick... Um, a quick dash to Venice and then back for covering the Road America race from home, sadly, this year after um, some, I guess I'll call it logistical issues, but was very disappointed to miss that race after going for the first time last year and seeing what the the crowd is like there, all of the camping vibe that's going on. It really is like, well, not really like any other race on the calendar in that sense, in terms of the kind of the vibe there and everything that's going on. Plus the cheats curves are awesome. So if you ever get the opportunity, definitely go and have some of those and try not to, uh, try not to eat as many as I did last year and put on a load of weight. But um, yeah, I guess getting back to the race, the, the, the standout topic after Alex Plow's win, after we'd already asked on the last episode, could he be beaten this season? He's gone and won another race. So uh, Joseph Newgarden and Pato Ward uh, speaking in the, in the post-race press conference, um, both, both reckon that the championship isn't over. A new guard and especially pointed to basically nothing going wrong for Alex Pillow so far this year, which is quite obvious when you look at his results. Um, do you think, JR, that Pillow is currently kind of a cut above or do you think there's some truth to the opinion that he's not really had anything go wrong? And I just want to clarify that briefly by that not being kind of like Joseph saying, oh, well, he's lucky that he's leading the championship. It wasn't pointed in that kind of way. He's just said that he has... You know, if you look at the results, literally, he has not had anything major go wrong. But I guess the Road America weekend was one of the first where something went really went wrong. When in he, you know, an hour and a half uh, before practice, before qualifying, he had the practice crash, which um, I, I guess gave his Ganassi team a, a lot of work to do. So it's definitely, you know, we've had his his engine went in uh, practice for for the five hundred as well. So it's definitely not been nothing going wrong. But the races have all gone really clean for him. I, I guess. Where do you lie on this kind of, um, let's call it a tightrope of 
a little bit of luck being in play here or, or at least not as much going wrong for him has gone has gone wrong for, for other people or him just performing, you know, totally above the rest of the opposition at the moment. Yeah, I think it's a combination of all of these things that's resulted in a 74 point lead, which is just kind of absurd, really, when you when you think about it this far into the season. So uh, I'll start by saying that I just that I think I mean, that that's enough of a lead that you can have a lot go wrong still and still be in the championship <laughs> lead, basically, when when this is all yeah. said and done. He ha- you know, you mentioned that he has had some things go wrong. They just haven't gone wrong when it really counted. So, you know, that you, you can sort of count those things towards the tally of the types of issues that you do tend to have and just, you know, engine failure or whatever that just manages to not take you out of uh, a points hall somewhere. Um, I mean, honestly, practice at Indianapolis is the is the best possible place that you could have uh, an engine go south or have those types of issues just because it's not even it's it's a, a, a you're missing a minute amount of the total practice time as compared to you have an engine failure that you lose yeah. a session anywhere else and it's actually it's a much bigger deal. So anyway, I guess it's just to say, yeah, I, I guess he's, he's fortunate that some of those things have happened when they when they've happened, but. Uh, I, I also don't. I don't really subscribe to the idea that you're just destined to to have things go wrong, just because that tends to happen at some point. So there's no particular reason to sit here and say like, oh well, it's just a matter of time that Alex has something go sideways in a qualifying session or or during a race. Like it's very possible. You know, this is not what <laughs> Joseph Newgarden or Pato Award want to hear, but it's very possible that just doesn't happen. Or, or or from this point in the season, it's frankly just as likely that that happens again to one of them as it does to Alex the first time around. You're kind of like starting from scratch, flipping a coin. Like it doesn't really matter what's happened up until now. Everybody has equal odds of these things happening for the rest of the season. And so, yeah, the I think you need to think about it that way to when you're one of these guys that's chasing Alex below. And, and we know that especially for those two drivers and there's probably a couple more that we could lump into that group but we'll say we'll just talk about those two guys because they're sort of on topic here that they are both capable of going out and beating Alex Pillow I think at any of the at any particular event going forward here so I think if you're if you're those guys a part of your optimism is built around the idea that you know you have a you have a feeling deep down and a confidence in in yourself as a driver and your team and being able to go out and actually just in man to man combat go beat these guys go beat the 10 car um at any particular style of event but i think ultimately that's what it's going to take is one of one of these challengers you know, we maybe maybe this is maybe there's a little bit of bias here, but I think Newgarden is is the guy just because we've seen him be the guy over the last few seasons that can go on a big run and go rip off three or four wins in four or five races. He's he's got no weakness in terms of a place on the calendar. He's he's arguably you're going into you're going to have Iowa and Gateway as a part of this kind of second half stretch those are places that he is unquestionably the guy to beat in my mind of this group pato is also there alex has performed well at those places but not not been at the level of either of those other two drivers so there are some places where at least the the 
you know, favoritism or the, you know, the Vegas odds, basically, if you want to kind of put it in that context are going to shift, but it's just a huge mountain to climb at this point already. Like this is not going to be a season where somebody that wins one or two races is going to win the championship. This is going to be a season where Alex has already won more than more than two races. So he could, he could kind of cruise to the end and have a willpower ish year for the rest of the year and easily still win um to overcome that it's gonna you know new gardener pato is gonna have to go off and go out and rip off three or four wins from here um so it's you know it's it's definitely shaping up to be a season where i i don't know that i necessarily i i guess i'd say i look at i look at Alex's lead right now. And I, I'm not sure given the races that are on the rest of the schedule, I'd be surprised if that lead is significantly more than it currently is by the end of the season, but it's going to take a lot to substantially eat into that at this point. It's interesting just to, just before we move this on that, that you kind of lay it out in that, in that sense, I was going through my kind of stat sheet earlier on and looking at the, if there was any trends basically and in, in terms of performance on ovals, street circuits and road courses specifically in each of those categories and obviously Newgarden stats on ovals look, looks pretty good because he's won the only two ovals we've had so far but looking at the the kind of the number of races we have left we've got two street courses and two ovals now uh, well three ovals if you count Iowa as obviously being two races so um, I mean you've got to think Newgarden's going to do pretty well at those two Iowa races like they're if, if there's any driver in any track combination on the schedule that you're kind of like, I can probably predict someone being in the top three here, then it's going to be Newgarden at Iowa. Like it's just, <laughs> it's almost like a, a given. I hope I'm not um, giving him any bad luck for, for that race. But I feel like people say this every single year and he still manages to deliver every single year. So me saying that is not going to be the factor that changes that hopefully. <laughs> but the with the road courses, there's, there's four left. So there's more road courses left on the schedule than any other. And, that kind of led me to think, well, we have to put a higher weight in on the people who are performing better on road courses at the minute because that's potentially where the the points are going to be made up on on Pelot. And Pelot's average on road courses so far is 2.3. He's won two of them and finished fifth at, at Barber. So, you know, he's looking pretty untouchable up there. The the downside for, for Newgarden and, and the other person who's been particularly good this season, Marcus Ericsson, is that they're both kind of averaging, they're, they're both averaging eighth on road courses. So, I guess I'm looking at that and thinking Newgarden is someone who 100% could go and win at any of the four road courses that are left on the schedule. Like we we know he can. Ericsson's yet to win on 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 any of those, so that's going to be difficult for him to come into play. And then you've got the second best road course sort of performer so far has been Pato Ward, who's averaging third place. So it's going to be interesting to see whether Pato can bring himself back into this and whether he can he can pick up a, a couple of wins or, or more at any of those tracks. Typically, he's not the kind of person we kind of associate with going on those big kind of new garden runs, but I don't know if McLaren's ever been in the in the position before where they've been able to to do that. And, you know, they've definitely been performing better than they have been in previous seasons this year. So that's going to be an interesting theme to watch. Yeah, no doubt. Um, let, let's talk about Alex's just general situation here. Um, you're You're cooking up a feature on the race uh with with an that's always dangerous with an interesting opinion we'll say about what's going on here um <laughs> you think his success might actually be a distraction for ganassi so like talk us through that well i guess they're in a position at the moment ganassi where they're having their most dominant spell 
Well, I guess Alex's performance at the moment is one of the most dominant spells that any of us kind of remember in recent IndyCar history. I know Dixon won the first three races of 2020 and that was kind of a similar um, scenario, but this is this feels different because Dixon literally won the first three races and then the rest of the year he was kind of being reeled in slowly but surely by by other people, whereas this has been like a consistent over eight races. He's either winning or being very close to it and is, is seemingly quite untouchable in the consistency that he's delivering. And uh, I guess the, the the kind of funny way to look at it or, or an interesting way to look at it maybe is that Ganassi can't afford to be distracted by this run that Alex is on at the moment because they they have to face up to the very real possibility that Alex is going to be leaving at the end of the season. I think the whole IndyCar paddock is convinced that Alex is going to be driving for McLaren next year. That's what he said he wanted to do before the whole litigation proceedings kicked off and that's what everyone expects him to want to do at the end of the season obviously the spanner in the works there is that he's not allowed to talk to any other teams until September when his contract allows him to to speak outside of the team but I think I think you, if you read the feature on the race when when it comes out I guess the idea I'm trying to get at is that Ganassi shouldn't be spending all the, all of their time and attention focusing on how good this run has been for for Pelot they should be safeguarding against the the future without him and looking at Marcus Ericsson because you know, we we heard um, some some comments on the broadcasting practice from from Kevin Lee about how you know he believed that Marcus was was getting very frustrated with his you know future situation and what was happening there. We've already spoken about it at length on the pod about Marcus you know being tapped up by McLaren. They're very interested in signing him if they if they have the possibility to sign him. I'm sure Andretti will be you know knocking on the door if if they get the chance as well. Um, as as will pretty much any team in the paddock who can afford to to pay Marcus's wages for for next season. So, uh, I, I guess the interesting way of looking at all this is that it's it's coming at a time where Ganassi can't afford to, uh, I guess, lull themselves into a false sense of security or start to believe that just because Pelot's doing so well at the moment that he's going to stay at the team and everything's going to stay the same. Because you know, I think I think they'll know that. I think they'll I think they'll be convinced of what's happening with the situation, and I think they'll be expecting that Alex is is going to leave. But they can't rest on their laurels at the moment and just enjoy all of it, all of this success because behind the scenes, I think the team's in a very precarious situation where it could well lose, you know, the driver who's gone on one of the most dominant runs we've seen in in recent memory, and the 2022 Indy 500 winner in the space of one off season, and not really have uh, an obvious answer or an obvious sort of fallback contingency plan if, if those two things do happen. So um, it's, a, it's a really interesting period and I think everyone's right to be focusing on Alex's performance and how good he's been and, and enjoying this kind of run and, and this level of, of dominance that we've seen from him. But I think it's, um, it's also a bit, of a, a bit of a warning to Ganassi that they you know, need to focus on behind the scenes and I'm sure they will be. They'll be having all of these conversations, but it's, um, you know, they, can't, they can't rest. They need to really sort out what's going to be you know, happening there in the future. Yeah, I guess I'd say certainly without without thinking too hard about what they're I I, I think to your point that Chip and Michael and all these guys who are involved in this conversation they're going to be they're aware of the fact right that that they have to not get caught off guard basically for what's coming at them for next year and and I think they recognize you know what's going on I think sometimes when you're inside these if you think about being inside these organizations you're probably even more aware of how good Alex's performances are because you you can see the data compared to Scott Dixon and Marcus Erickson and, and Marcus Armstrong. And sometimes that stands out even more apparently when you have somebody that's doing something, you know, that's that's really special. We can only see we can only see the the things that are 
that are really exposed and expressive in terms of what creates for those results. But so I definitely agree with you that it, it's it's a task to to sort of zoom back out and come back down to earth and recognize that you know I think for these guys really that you've got a business to run and that that's dependent on you know maintaining your future. It's it I, I would love to know I and I don't have any insight into this, but you'd love to just be on be a fly on the wall. You got to think that there's still that there's that there's still a little bit of hope that somebody there is still holding out some hope that with the right offer and the right situation that they could keep Alex because you just don't. But to your point, like maybe that's maybe it, it really is a foregone conclusion that that's not going to happen. And so even just holding out that bit of hope is probably screwing up your ability to to make that make those make the right decisions ultimately for your organization down the road. So. Um, I know I would be having maybe maybe Chip and Mike are, are not having this problem, but I know I would be having that problem um, <laughs> trying to think about it. And it's also worth I would just as you were talking about the season that that Alex is having, it is worth mentioning to our earlier conversation. He did get taken out in the pit lane during the Indianapolis 500 um, and still came back to finish fourth. Right. So uh-huh. he has had some things go wrong, um, you know, horribly wrong for most people and and manages just to just to rebound and uh, and have some bounce back from those things. So it is it is definitely, um, you know, it's an incredible, an incredible year and just an incredible string of performances to your point that have come. We've We've been like building towards these performances. It's not like you were just to your point about Scott, it wasn't like you just rolled out of the gates and you were just, you know, you had a better package than everybody else at the beginning of the year. And then you're kind of skating for the rest of the year. Like this sort of seems like this is getting harder and harder to beat this guy (laughs) as you, as we get deeper into the season. So uh, yeah, it's definitely, definitely an impressive streak that we're witnessing here from Palo and the 10 guy, 10 group. I think it's, it's like a, it's a weird situation with Ganassi and, Marcus, it's probably like the, the the worst of both worlds in the sense that Marcus has spent his whole career basically bringing a budget or bringing a sponsor or or at least helping contribute towards his drives in you know pretty much every category, and then he goes and wins the five hundred and like every driver he he knows exactly what Indy five hundred winners should get paid and what they deserve to get paid right there's a there's a market out there they know roughly what their their value is and Marcus has seen a string of Indy 500 winners in the past get get paid and and have their deals sorted out a lot earlier than than this one has has been done um obviously on the other side chip is quite a i don't know if I want to call him like an old school businessman but he he has a very particular way of doing things and you know he, he you can you can take from that what you want but he you know he'll I think he doesn't necessarily feel such a rush to get this done as as Marcus does and I think they're both coming at things from the opposite end of the spectrum that Marcus feels like this is already very late in the process and that he should be he should have had this sorted by now and there's other teams probably speaking to his management trying to work out whether he's available and and if that's going to be a possibility and you know Marcus will likely know about that kind of thing you know he said he's had some calls and and stuff like that so you know it's 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 clear no matter how the contract word and stuff works that Marcus is aware that there's other teams who want him and would sign him and chip seems to be leaving this quite late for an Indy 500 winner um and then you and then you tumble in that context of Alex likely being off at the end of the season and Ganassi facing the prospect of of Marcus and Alex leaving and you wonder why 
that whole thing has not been not been buttoned up yet. And obviously Chip doesn't like to be asked so much about his driver's contracts and about the future and that sort of thing. He, I think he actively dislikes it, to be honest, um, judging by my experience of that whole thing. But um, yeah, it's, it's just, a, a, I guess there's two parties at opposite ends of the spectrum there and they're not really close together in terms of the, the speed and the agreement of trying to work this out. And that's why it's taking so long. So we're not necessarily saying that it's a foregone conclusion or, or that Marcus is leaving or, or anything like that. There's still enough time to get this sorted, but you can see where the, you can see where the disappointment is on Marcus's side based on drivers who've gone before him in the past. Yeah. And I think just to chime in on that really briefly to speak to a little bit of what I've seen in these types of situations and particularly with chip, it really in the context of, what we've seen occasionally when Scott Dixon has been up for renewal over his career. So this has been something that I think, you know, is, has set a bit of a precedent for how Chip tends to manage these things in the past. When, when clearly you want to keep the guy like they're there. So take any other considerations out of it in terms of everything you said, you're right that Marcus's situation is a little more complicated because he's brought money He's, he's brought sponsorship to these deals before. And, and so, you know, that's a, a shift that he understandably is keen to make deserves to make, to not, or to not be responsible for doing that. At least, um, you know, in your, if you're in Marcus's shoes, you probably kind of know that this is, this is just a part of the business of racing. I mean, as drivers, you always sort of look at what other guys, you know, there, there's, there's a, you know, sort of a, a an understanding within the paddock almost that, well, if you're bringing money, it's going to be hard to put yourself in position that there's not an expectation that you're still going to bring some money, basically. That, you know, it, it's particularly for drivers that have had that from a longstanding group of relationships. It's one thing if you, you know, you've got a sponsor that like tags along with your deal for one year out of five or something, and that that's what helps you get in there. I think teams kind of recognize that that's maybe not something that's going to be there all the time. And so, you know, then that resets your options. But, you know, I, I used to think about Mike Conway actually in this context, like he always had a little bit of kind of moral. It was almost like, it was almost like it was private equity money or something, you know, it was like investment money basically that was attached to his programs. And he, performed at a level over and over again on road and street courses that was deserving of just get, having, you know, showing up and getting paid. And he may have at, at different times for different teams, but it did, I think, sort of limit some of what his options were because of the fact that it was just, you know, teams start to make an assumption that those, whatever, a couple million bucks or whatever it is, are just going to help, um, you know, sort of supplement whatever those deals are. So Marcus is, is sort of in that spot by no, by no particular like fault of his own. It's just the scenario, just the reality of what his situation has been over the course of his career coming here. And I think part of what going back to what I was going to say about Scott is Scott's deals got done early in every one of those renewal situations because he had, because there was an instant on the table, fairly significant market value offer from another team and that that's you know i think chips for better or for worse in these kinds of situations but i think that chips mo is well i'm not and i think this is we saw this with this whole situation with alex with Pelot last year that 
I'm not going to make, I'm not going to be the one to establish what this guy's market value is. I'm going to wait for somebody else to, to say, this is what I'm willing to pay this guy. And then I'm going to, you know, you, you get the feeling that at Ganassi, they're sort of making the assumption that, well, we've got the best team. So like we've, we, we are offering any particular driver the best opportunity to go win a championship, which I think is probably still fair to say. I mean, other teams have gotten closer to that. If you're talking about Penske being your kind of rival in that situation, maybe maybe drivers think about that differently. Certainly Arrow McLaren, I think part of the reason that this all became so complicated last year with Alex is that you do have Arrow McLaren that is bringing a lot of value and performance and, and the types of things that Ganassi that you think you're going to have at Ganassi and and arguably maybe has more resources or or more funding at their disposal at least or or the appearance of more funding if nothing else uh behind the scenes so you know these are sort of changing dynamics that I think make this a little bit more complicated for Ganassi but I do think you know, just I guess just uh to sort of elaborate on the idea that Chip is sort of an old school negotiator I feel like that's just, and I don't know this from talking to Chip or being, you know, from within the Ganassi organization, but it just really has the feeling that he sort of waits to see what he, what these guys kind of are going to be worth at other places and, and then makes a move to keep their guy. And just in the, in the, in the situations where these things have gotten done earlier with drivers that they do really want to keep in the past. You know, that's just that's happened sort of instantaneously. There's been an offer from from a I think even with Scott, it I think it was from McLaren, frankly. Um, before McLaren was really the McLaren that they are now in the last round of negotiations when Zach was just starting to fire this whole thing up, like looking at Scott as being a guy that hey, we're gonna build this whole program around being able to lock in Scott Dixon early. You can imagine that the number that got thrown out there to be in that position, knowing what we know now about McLaren was pretty significant, that immediately set a market rate for Scott Dixon um, for Chip to sort of react to. So uh, it'll be it'll definitely be an interesting one to follow as we go later on this year. And, And for the drivers that are involved in these situations, I think particularly because Chip is the type of guy that he is, it's hard not to let emotion uh, sort of bleed into feeling like you're getting disrespected a little bit. Um, and, and I think ultimately that's just, this is just chips way of negotiating basically. And and that's, it's sort of a tactic of sorts from that perspective that, you know, we'll see how it plays out. All right, Joe, we should probably, uh, get a little bit more depth into this race, but before we do, I guess just to, kind of round off that whole Ganassi situation. I think it's been really interesting to see over the next couple of weeks or or um, months if this form from Alex Plough continues as to whether we're going to get some some other Formula One teams interested in him because, you know, theoretically he's, you know, he's not allowed to speak to any other teams until September. So by the law of his contract, no deal with McLaren has been done yet, at least on paper, because that would be, you know, if that was the case, that would be bre- breaching his Ganassi contract. So, um what we see typically with the F1 teams is that they don't necessarily always notice the the consistency or the kind of minutiae of an IndyCar championship season, but they notice drivers when they're winning a lot. Um, 
step foot forward Colton Herter so uh, I guess it's going to be really interesting now to see whether we get some of the Formula 1 teams as we get a bit closer to to looking at 2024 for them whether any of them kind of come in and, and pick up uh, interest in Alex Plo speaking of Herter he was obviously such a key part of this race he led the most laps he was seemingly totally in control the, the one point that he, he didn't seem to be in control was when he was jumped by Newgarden and Pelot in the stops and he you know almost immediately got back ahead and was in the in the net lead of the race after that and then that pulled pit stop where we've I felt like we saw this with Newgarden earlier in the season at one of the races where um was it Barber I think it was Barber where the only logical conclusion we could come to was that they just hadn't got enough fuel in the car in the in the last stint and was it Long Beach was it Long Beach yeah it wasn't the last stint was it but it was it was a similar situation where they they were struggling to fill the car and I, I guess the only logical assumption again I can draw from this was that they they didn't quite get as much fuel in the car as they should have because they I mean I know four and four point seven miles or whatever it is at Road America is a long it's it's a longer lap than most other places so if you do pit a lap earlier and the impact of that is going to be more significant than at basically any other track on the schedule so um, that's a big deal but also the amount that he seemed to be having to save and the the pace that it cost him was was really significant so. I guess let's get into Herter a little bit more, JR. Um, is this one of those situations where we have to kind of celebrate Colton, really, for the performance that he delivered, um, the, the level of dominance he had in the race, because it didn't really seem like he'd done a lot wrong. It, and the reason I have to ask this is because it feels like we get these situations so often with Andretti where something like this kind of goes wrong. And, and, and maybe this is not, maybe this is an unfair characterization because it might not necessarily have been something specifically that Andretti have done wrong in the closing stages of this race. We don't know exactly what's happened there to cause that issue. But it just seems like a theme is kind of what I'm pointing to that things like this quite often happen to Andretti and to Colton when he's in these situations. And I guess rather than throwing the book at Andretti or criticising them so much, I wonder if this is just a time to, to sit back and say, you know, what a performance on Colton. And, and this was kind of a a win lost for him more than a win gained for anybody else. Yeah, I mean, you, you definitely got the sense from Colton's post-race comments that he was just like, you know, he felt like he had every ounce of pace required to beat Pelot, even though Pelot took off basically. I mean, he had like five seconds or something on Joseph by the end of the race. Yep. So just given, given the, how close of proximity those guys were all running in the previous stints for Alex to have then just split basically in the final stint was I think kind of telling in terms of maybe what those guys had just, you know, banked in essence in pace prior to that point in the race. The, the question mark for me is, it could be a it could be a matter of they were surprised by needing to pit when they did. I guess that didn't really sound like that was the case on the broadcast. You know, I think we we could dig into this later to understand a little bit more. I mean, I think we'd come back on the next podcast and find out a little bit more about what was actually going on here uh, if it's relevant. But the other, I think the other thing that had me think or that I was thinking about was. If you don't think it's going to be a huge difference to pit on that lap, on the lap that they did, I think with 15 to go instead of 14 to go basically was was sort of the difference there. That one of the ways that you end up in that situation as the leader, I mean, there's so much at Road America, at least when the cars are running close together, there's so much advantage from a, it's almost like being on an oval in terms of the advantage that you have by not being 
the leader in terms of how much fuel save you can do and maintain the pace, basically. So if you've got pace in hand, it was impressive to me that those guys, those guys were all on reds. That was the previous stint that they all, you saw drivers that were further back in the pack. Scott McLaughlin in particular comes to mind as kind of like he was, he was one of the comers rather than the goers pre, you know, prior to that reds, that third stint basically where most of the lead group were on reds. Um, you know, he was, he just, you could really tell that the car was falling off by the last four or five laps of that stint, like going to his onboards, you could tell that he was hanging on just trying to get to that pit lap. So that didn't appear to be happening for most of the lead group that was on reds. You figure Colton's out all the way out in front. So he's got clean air that's helping his reds last longer. Um, so I guess my point there is just for Colton not to have been doing much fuel save when they went to his onboard, at least on, on his pit in lap, it didn't appear that he was doing any fuel save at all. So that, that may have been, um, misrepresentative to what he was, what he had been doing previous to that in the stint. But I, I guess I'm saying all of this just to say that road America is actually kind of a hard, it's an easy place to hit the fuel number because there's so many places. Like if you've got to save some fuel, there's so much time spent on straightaway that it's easy to lift and coast in a lot of different places to save enough fuel to hit a number. That being said, it's a hard place to hit the number and keep the tires in the window. Um, because uh, as you're going down the straightaway, there's such long, it's almost like the opposite is true that the straightaways are so long. Tires are cooling off quite a bit down the straight compared to the heat that they maintain when you're when you have a lot of cornering load um, to then go lift and coast going into the corners, you're not building, building that energy back up by being heavy on the brakes at the end of the straightaway. So you can, it, it's, it's sort of a weird line to end up walking that sometimes for the leader, if you're in clean air, you have even more of that impact. There's some little things that like I've experienced and seen in these races from different drivers in the past that made me just wonder, I wonder if, they're just really trying to hang on to the lead like that. They think that, that the, the conversation on the pit stand was if we start having to lift and coast hello, seems like he's got enough pace that we're going to get, you know, passed by one car, maybe two cars to pit on the same lap that those guys are on. So we're going to try to maintain the lead. There's been a lot of yellows up until this point, kind of gambling that, the situation that you're in by having pitted a lap earlier just isn't that dramatically different than the cars around you. Like either you get a yellow and it completely resets everybody from a fuel saving perspective. Like had a yellow occurred in that final stint after everybody had pitted, this would have been a different end of the race because Colton would not have had to have saved as much as he did. Um, you know, or just that I guess at that point, maybe you've got enough pace in hand that once you get on blacks, it's easier to make the tire last or or whatever. So I think it could there are there are definitely some choices that could have been made here that had nothing to do with an issue with the amount of fuel that was put in the car or 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 what they thought they had in the final stint or or any of those things. Um I, I guess to actually address your point here about, you know, should we be celebrating Colton here? I think we should. It was certainly nothing that he was doing. You know, you you look at these, he's he's kind of ended up in some situations like this 
at different points in the season because on that like on that red stint, whenever it's been, you know, it happened to him at Barber, it happened at St. Pete, that he's just like driving the hell out of the thing for the first half of the stint and completely burning the tires up. And that's been the thing that has created a huge time loss to a bunch of the cars around him because he's just completely gone off at the end of that stint sort of by his own doing in a sense, like not really heeding the instruction or, or suggestion from the team that he needs to be saving tires, like pushing, 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 pushing right on the back of another car in a situation where you're kind of watching from the outside, like, okay, everybody else around you is actively working to save tires here. You're just like a man on a mission to get by this one car for 10 laps in a row. And it ends up, you know, backfiring. Basically, this was certainly not not any of those scenarios. Um, I, I got to give him a shout out for the, the qualifying lap in the first place. That pole lap was just, you know, insanely committed. Like I, I actually texted Harner and and Nathan O'Rourke was like, "Was he flat through the carousel? Like it looked like he was flat through the carousel." <laughs> um, and they they said they gave him flat. And he had a little baby lift. Um, <laughs> But uh, his 10th his his pole as well, which is quite significant. Yeah. So I guess I'd say there's a lot of things to like about what Colton Herta did this weekend. I mean, this was this was one of those weekends that was primed to be kind of one of these dominant performances from Colton. And and just because of the way that those final two stints worked out. And, and I, I'm 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 sort of leaning towards this was sort of just a strategy decision that maybe they just didn't have him save enough fuel early in that third stint or, you know, or some combination of him not quite hitting the number or something um, that that was, that that was what went, what went down. That's at least in this situation, that's at least plausible that that is what happened uh, barring, you know, us hearing that that wasn't it. So, um, you know, a bummer for him for sure. Cause this, this definitely seemed like the type of event that, um, you know, whether it turns his season around, his season is probably, he's not really like a championship contender at this point. It doesn't seem like, so that doesn't really matter. He is a championship just, contender at this point. Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, you know, you could say, you could say that, you know, very, anybody outside New Garden, frankly, is going to have a hard time being, and Erickson, I guess, you know, those seem like they're kind of the guys. Um, but that, uh, you know, Colton, for Colton at this point, you know, they've talked about him kind of having the change of strategist. Obviously, his dad's on Kirkwood's car now. That's a shift and 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 maybe one that ends up playing out positively for him. But definitely, you know, just getting used to the way that somebody new is communicating on the timing stand and all that kind of stuff is just going to be different. Um, you know, as strong as Andretti was at the beginning of the year, it seems like that's leveled out a little bit just in terms of they're still in it whenever they, you know, at, at sort of every event here, but, um, you know, having to really genuinely face up against a lot of competition. So, you know, it, it's, it's just less likely that we see him run away with events. I'd personally like to see him just be able to kind of come out of a little bit of this spiral and start, you know, at least linking some events together. So I think this is, this could certainly be the start of that at a bare minimum, right? Um, okay. It didn't quite turn out with the result that was maybe available, had some things gone differently, but um, you know, it's, it, it's all together. It's not, a, it's not exactly a race that everything went horribly wrong either. 
So uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see kind of where these guys end up. I want to just just touch on something really quickly about the track that I thought was interesting. And that was interesting just watching this whole weekend. So they got to repave. Um, you know, that was a big part of that. That was why you saw the lap time be as fast as it was in qualifying. I mean, the last time that cars were even close to being flat through the carousel was back in the arrow kit era of these things. So a lot more downforce. Um, I just think, I actually think it's interesting. It was interesting to me how, how hard it seemed for anybody to pull away. Like it, it did, it was almost reminiscent of a, of an oval race from that perspective that just kind of seemed like until the final stint at no point during the race was anybody just checking out and you had the entire field basically was kind of nose to tail. It was almost like watching an F1 race where everybody's in the DRS train that it's like, you're kind of just getting caught up. And I think it's, this is like a longer conversation for another day, but an interesting example of what happens when mechanical grip gets brought up to sort of enable the cars to be less dependent on the arrow basically. So at this, at this place, because the track grip was so high, just the, the sort of relative impact of mechanical grip and aero grip was higher on the mechanical side. So you could almost imagine that being, you know, we have these conversations behind the scenes all the time of like, okay, what if you took downforce away and had bigger tires on the car? Like how would that impact the the sort of racing and and what goes on here. And, and everybody's always so fearful of, I think just because the, the status quo here is cars that have a lot of downforce and, and we've, the downforce has come down on IndyCar for sure. Like with the universal kit, the cars had, you know, a pretty significant decrease in downforce from, from the arrow kit cars and, and whatever. So this is no particular comment about like where we've been or, or what's going on. But I just thought it was interesting to see that the track grip being as high as it was at a place like this really did make a big, it did make a big difference in terms of how close guys could follow through the corner. And it allowed it, it you know, there was, there was some crazy stats about the number of on-track passes and the number of on-track passes for position. That's a big part of it was just the mechanical grip of the cars because the track grip was higher was a lot higher than it is probably for, I mean, we haven't been to a place, we haven't been to a road course that's been recently repaved. I mean, I can't remember the last time that any of the road courses that IndyCar goes to have been recently repaved. So um, I just thought that was an interesting little caveat that, you know, the race was, the racing was so close throughout the, throughout the field up and down, you know, they talked a lot about, you know, how slick it was offline and all these kinds of things. But um, I thought this was kind of a cool little insight into how those types of differences really make a difference in the way the cars behave and the way the racing works. Another notch in your campaign for IndyCar to have a thousand brake horsepower and no downforce and all that kind of stuff. Bring it guys, bring it. (laughs) (laughs) If you saw JR's tweet the weekend, he's just explained why he wants the cars to have a thousand brake horsepower pretty much. Although we could go into a lot more detail on that. (laughs) I mean, the, the essence of it is why not? Like, I don't understand why we don't have a thousand brake horsepower. And and for everybody who says, oh, well, F1 has a thousand horsepower and, you know, that doesn't seem to make the cars any better. Well, it's because they have like twice as much downforce as an IndyCar has. So, of course, it, it the, the whole the whole point here is not just the it's not just the number. It's not, you know, so that we have something to talk about. It's not whatever. It's to it's to change the dynamic of the way the cars look and behave on track and. And like, 
the only way to do certain things, the only way to really, you know, in, in my mind, a lot of this is, you know, how do you differentiate IndyCar more dramatically from F1? And the, the way to do that, however it's achieved, is to, you know, IndyCar, I think, has always been thought of as something that's more raw, that's more, uh, you know, the, 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 you know, it's, it's a little bit more on the ragged edge, it's a little bit more unrefined, and that those are good things. You know, we, you want to be able to see the cars be expressive of the driver and that we've had, we've had this kind of quote unquote, great racing for so long now, but ultimately like that, if, if we look at all of the things that are measuring, you know, our, our measurements of series growth or attention being paid to the series or whatever, that hasn't like substantially moved the needle. Like Yes, it has great racing. Yes, we all appreciate that the racing is really good. I'd much rather have good racing than not have good racing. But <laughs> but that as a thing just all by itself, like to have to have the entire formula of the product of IndyCar be designed really strictly for that, which having a little more downforce than you need, having less horsepower, having the cars be closer to terminal velocity at the end of the straightaways everywhere, like all of these, having the cars not be fundamentally like ultra hard just to go drive like you get in a sprint car it's really hard to just not crash it probably right like so there's there's kind of these different ends of the spectrum um the you know we've we've designed a lot of these things to have really close good racing we've achieved that and i guess for for all and i'm not speaking you know, I'm not a, I'm not alone in this opinion within the paddock or among drivers or I don't think among IndyCar fans that it just hasn't really changed where we're all where this whole thing is at that much. You know, OK, we've got great racing. Cool. What else? Like what else makes this more awesome than Formula One? And uh, and I do think that though I don't think IndyCar necessarily needs to be directly competitive against Formula One, like they're kind of apples and oranges as businesses in terms of where we race and all this kind of stuff. We, we do need to think about formula one as the obvious other tier one open wheel thing that's going on out there that, that we need to be differentiated from like we cer certainly being some version of formula one or being something that seems like F1 light in terms of the pace of the cars and all the rest of the stuff. If, if we're even remotely in that conversation, it's not good for IndyCar. And so to me, the the thing that sort of needs to happen here to elevate what we've got going on is to consider the fact that one of our differentiating factors and one of the competitive advantages that IndyCar has is that it goes to these places like Road America that F1 would never be able to go to and do all this stuff, but make it, but make it more excessive, make the thing that makes IndyCar IndyCar even more obvious and even more apparent and give the drivers something that they've been asking for for like decades you know just for the car to to car to the car to really truly be a modern day beast that requires being tamed and so um this this uh, that's that for anybody who's wondering or whatever that's where this whole conversation comes from about more power less downforce whatever it's keep the to be able to do the things that IndyCar does to go to places that IndyCar goes to that make it make it so great. We talked about Detroit. We talked about these kinds of places that F1, I mean, this, these are just, you're never going to be able to do that with the way that F1 operates. 
you have to keep the cornering speeds in check, like the cornering energy, even if we're talking about Indianapolis, like it just, the cars can't go that much faster through the corner and have it be safe. Like we just don't, there's nothing about, you know, uh, there's, there's a lot of tracks that we go to that you're kind of already up against the verge of a single car accident being like about as bad as you can let it be. Um, so how do you make it more excessive and more interesting? Well, you have to bring the downforce down, you, and then you have to bring the horsepower up. Like that's, that's the only way that any of this stuff becomes appreciably more awesome. Um, and that I'm certainly not afraid to go on the record and say IndyCar can be appreciably more awesome. So, so why shouldn't it be that basically? Um, so that's my, that's my soapbox rant for the day. All right, let's get back into this chat. I just want to clarify for the record that Andretti has not said that there's been any problem with the uh, fueling of the car in the last stint for Colton. They said that it was a, a, like a, a fuel management kind of issue across the last stint. So they didn't, they had the opportunity to point to something being wrong and they didn't. So um, that's what we know from that. Anyway, just wanted to give a shout out to Scott Dixon, who came from 23rd to 4th in the race, which was very impressive. Managed to ditch the soft tyres after a couple of laps at the start there. Um, Kyle Kirkwood spin and caution uh, immediately at the start after tapping Pato Award. Uh, gave Dixon that chance to to come in and, and ditch the reds that he started on. The reds didn't last as long as uh, the blacks, and that meant that he could just stay on those tyres for the rest of the race. The only kind of qualm I had with that whole race for Dixon really was that he he either wasn't aggressive enough or didn't have the capability to be aggressive enough in that penultimate stint where the guys ahead were on the softs and he was like well within range of them on the hards uh, and and theoretically should have been able to pick off one or two more cars there if he'd have been a bit quicker and the evidence of that was uh, I guess how quickly and how closely Marcus Ericsson kind of caught him and then followed him through that stint. Um, it definitely looked like Marcus had uh, more pace in that stint than, than Scott did. Although Scott's post-race interview was kind of like we had, you know, the typical kind of Scott, we had the car that was quick enough to win today if we'd have started further forward, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but he was worth mentioning because that was his the first race that he qualified outside of the top nine all season. Um, and in a, as you mentioned, Polo crashing in the pit lane at the 500 and being able to come back, that was a, a similar situation for Dixon and Ericsson in a way because he was another one who... Um, had a very eventful race where he was kind of topsy-turvy and ended up quite quite a lot further back than he should have been. And his race could have totally come undone when he came out of the pits after the last stop behind uh, two McLarens and um, Rossi coming out of the pits, kind of causing an absolute roadblock at turn one there and holding everyone up. So That merge at the end like was totally crazy. Yeah, like wild. I, I hope they think about at least like, like they had the once it because I guess once it becomes the dotted line, you can just cross over. Yeah. And so it's sort of like, man, after seeing because it was uh Lungard that had to like thread the needle between yeah. he was making the pass down the front straight hot tires on Felix, I think. And then all those cars coming out of the pit lane. I was like, just wild. The closing rate here, it's like a hundred mile an hour difference in speed or something at the end of the front straightaway. Like maybe we should make it so that you have to keep two tires over the dotted line or something, you know, down to the end. Cause that definitely looked super sketchy. Yeah. So Marcus was able to 
I guess he went a little bit off strategy running the Reds in the what was effectively the second stint instead of the third like everybody else and uh, still managed to somehow kind of pull that all together and just behind him was Christian Lungard who I really wanted to give a shout out for because he was one of the few people who actually made those soft tyres work like across the length of a stint and passed like three or four cars on the on the Reds at the end of that stint so uh, he was on the same tyres as everybody else but still able to to pick off other cars so um whether that was the setup of the car or, or what Christian was doing to look after the tyres, it definitely paid off and it was absolutely vital for him jumping those cars that we mentioned with Ericsson, um, uh, although he did have to thread the needle a little bit, <laughs> as, as you mentioned there. Uh, let's go on to Willie P, Will Power, um, Indie Cars, entertainment specialist, I'll call him. Um, where, where are we up this, jail? I guess we'll just recap for anyone who didn't see all of the kind of practice shenanigans and stuff that we referred to as earlier. Um Will was taken out in practice by Scott Dixon after Scott had not seen him come in and basically drove across the track into Will, which looked like the most obvious kind of NASCAR like crash into someone you've ever seen, like it had done on purpose. But Scott <laughs> was literally just trying to get out of the way and didn't see Will come in and smashed him off the track. Will then proceeded to get out of the car and flip the now infamous double bird at Scott before going over to him, shouting at him and pushing him. Um, and then uh, <laughs> I guess... Uh, then after qualifying, which didn't go well for Will, uh, he was 22nd. He uh, criticised Dixon again and uh, called Roman Grosjean a piece of crap and said that he deserved a punch in the face after blocking him in that same in in, in the earlier practice session. Um, and then if all that wasn't enough, uh, thanks to our friend Marshall Pruitt from Racer, we have the story of um, after Will had criticised the the runoff, which was a totally bizarre thing to do in my opinion, like. The, the answer to the runoff being uncomfortable on a track is to not use it. Do, just don't go off the track. Um, but Will decided to take aim at the at the track. He said it was always it was always crap. Basically, that that when you go off at Road America, it's like not as well kept off the track as other places. So the the track ownership uh, decided to park a truck full of sewage outside of Will Power's motorhome, which Will promptly drove down the paddock to outside Scott Dixon's motorhome to what Marshall called paying it forward, which was the perfect phrase. I think um, Will obviously doing that as payback for the kind of practice crash. Uh, and then Will and Scott were laughing about the whole thing in the kind of pre-race green room situation. So Will's obviously over it. I, I guess to bring us that down to earth a little bit with this, JR, how, how are you kind of with Will's reaction to all this? Because on one hand, there's just no one like him basically there's maybe a few drivers like him in motorsport generally, but there's definitely no one like him in IndyCar. And he's very old fashioned in the sense of how outwardly he reacts to things compared to other like open wheel guys. Like I'm not including NASCAR in this, but the the whole kind of open wheel world, he's definitely one of the kind of most, most out there when it comes to this kind of thing. Um, but recently we've talked about people, well, Pato Award has been someone we've spoken about quite a couple, well, a couple of times, I think this year for the way he's handled um, you know incidents that he's had uh, which have usually been his fault um, so it's not exactly the same scenario but we've kind of criticised him for not necessarily apologising or being as kind of direct as he perhaps should have been with hindsight in terms of apologising for something or, or or whatever and then you've got Will like laying hands on Scott Dixon which is you know he's not obviously gone over there and punched him, but I'm still quite as funny as all this is and how entertaining Will is. I'm still really uncomfortable with a driver like putting his hands on another driver in in this scenario. I know it's something that's kind of bred into NASCAR and stuff like that, but 
it's it's not something I necessarily like to see. But uh, I guess are you kind of happy with how Wills handles himself and how he kind of? It, it definitely feels like he kind of gets a fr- not a free pass, but people are more lenient towards him because of how he acts uh, on a consistent basis. Whereas I feel like if other drivers have done this, then they would not have got the leniency that that Will had. Um, I'm just interested in your general kind of take on this and how you feel about it. Yeah, I, I guess I think, well, first, I, I do think it's hilarious. Um, <laughs> I've been laughing over here this whole time that you've been talking. So you've done, a, you've done an excellent job of not just reacting to the fact that I'm laughing on our Zoom call here. Um, the, uh, But I do think, you know, when you, when you zoom out and you think about it, just in the context of sports more broadly, like, it, it is a little bit surprising that there wasn't some kind of, you know, fines or penalties or or something just from i mean the double birds alone right i mean the last time that this happened at loudon i think he did get fined so uh, and maybe that's because that was during the race and it was on the live on the broadcast or, or something but um yeah it's it's definitely uh i think the i think you're you're exactly right about this whole thing that because it's willpower and because you kind of know that it's it's just this you know almost like will ferrell ish kind of reaction to things that that you're just it's like it's just gonna you know it's just this momentary burst of emotion and whatever that that it's almost going to be like he forgot even happened 10 minutes later that you sort of i don't know he he does sort of seem to get a free pass for that reason he's been in the series long enough that like maybe he's earned that i don't know um I do think if this was other people, you'd be you'd be looking at it differently for sure. Because, well, in part because you you just assume that they're much more serious about the, and 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 I think to your point, maybe that maybe we're, you know, he he very well could have just punched Scott in the face, and and we would have been in a way like shocked by that sort of like yeah. So so yeah, there's a weird line that ends up being walked here. I mean, I guess I was just watching the whole thing. I felt, I felt like Scott's reaction. There's a, a Matt Archuleta, I think on on Twitter has a, I think he's Indy 44, maybe it's something like that. At Indy 44, go look it up. He had like a uh, just a slow mo replay, basically of <laughs> of this whole of, of the whole initial interaction. And I just loved Scott's like Scott's just doing this like, come on, man, like shrug, you know. Like obviously, obviously it was not on purpose. Um, Will must have known. So the whole thing seemed just completely over the top in terms of Will's reaction to it. From the, I mean, I was watching it, thinking like, dude, relax. Like, okay, it's okay to be pissed off about this because you your car just got wrecked and your sessions now smoked and whatever. But he reacted as if Scott did this on purpose, which like in what world is that even a possible scenario here you know um so for him to just have the the double bird reaction it's like such a specific (laughs) like physical emotional reaction to things like when i think about in my head the the type of scenario that warrants double birds to somebody this is not this is not anywhere near what that is um and it's in practice of all things. Like if it had happened during the race, even maybe it's maybe we're we're more kind of in that window. But um, yeah, so so I was if it, it being willpower, it kind of doesn't a hundred percent surprise me. But 
it just seemed like a massive overreaction to the whole thing. Um, his comments about Roma, same thing, like kind of hilarious, but also way over the top based on what had happened and what had happened in practice. I mean, we saw this happen during the, I mean, you know, yeah, it's, it's again, unwarranted to block somebody. I don't think Roman was making any friends this weekend, just up and down the entire pit lane over the course of practice sessions during the race, whatever. So, uh, you know, he's, I think what will maybe is just voicing the opinion that a number of drivers might've been feeling, um, you know, over, over the weekend to make comments about the track kind of same thing. Like this is the type of thing that most drivers are getting Mark miles or Roger Penske or Bud Danker, or, you know, some of these guys coming down to have a sit down chat with them. Like, Hey, like we don't publicly criticize tracks for things that are literally not there, you know, whatever, like, if you want to have a conversation off record about with about the way the gravel traps are here with the guys so that they change them for next year, fine. But just spouting off about, you know, how bad they are and that they've always been, you know, you're just totally slandering <laughs> the racetrack. It's like one of the best racetracks on the IndyCar schedule. Um, it just, yeah, it, it was like, Will was having a, this string of out of body, you know, just, verbal diarrhea moments you know um so yeah i don't I don't really know what to what to make of it. it 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 does i guess the only thing that really does come to mind is it seems quite a bit different than the mentality that took him to a championship last year or what we perceived to be the mentality that took him to a championship last year like these are the types of things that he was completely unfazed by it seemed like in a championship run so um I don't know. I'd, I'd be interested to. I, I wonder what Will thinks about it. Basically, after the weekend, you know, deep down, like I, I wonder if there's a small part of him that's kind of looking back on this weekend and recognizing that he's not quite bringing the same um, attitude that that uh, you know brought him so much success last year back to the table because it seems like it's it's such a mental thing for a, you know, for any of these guys. We know that, but. Um, you know, he he chalked so much of his performance up last year to this kind of revised attitude. So I don't know. Those those are just all the various things that were kind of going through my head watching this go down over the weekend. That's why the Will Ferrell comparison is so good because it, the, I don't know anyone who does a double bird. Like it's not even like a thing that I, I like ever <laughs> see anyone do. Like it's like you like, just to be your natural reaction means yeah. that this is not like. The two times that we've seen it are definitely not the only two times that it's occurred no, in it's Will crazy. Power's life. And also, again, along the Will Ferrell kind of angle, it's it's almost like he's he's like some sort of caricature character who's spent a year and a half in this Zen mindset, and then all of it is kind of like dissipated in one moment where all of that year and a half has just been released in a single like space of twenty four hours. Um, and and yeah, I, I guess. It's hard to sit here and analyze or debate over this because it's it is fundamentally very funny. But the 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 more serious aspect for me uh, is uh, I guess having covered junior formula for a long time and been very kind of involved in a lot of junior paddocks. It does make me wonder what kind of you know precedent it sets for kids who are watching that. And you know it, I, I'm admittedly a child in an adult's body but i found it hilarious so if i'm like an eight-year-old carter 
then chances are I'm going to find all of that very funny. And obviously kids are more impressionable, theoretically. So, uh, you know, Will especially is someone who has made that extra effort off track to support young drivers. Like we've seen it with Miles Rowe. He's really worked hard with, with him on his career and been been someone willing to give his time up. And I don't know if mentorship is going too far or, or uh, like a too, like not the right word to use, but at least given his advice and, you know, his guidance. Brand. He's got, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So to see him act in such a way for me is a bit like, I think it at least opens the door for conversation as to what is acceptable and, but my final thought while you were talking, which I, which kind of dawned on me, was quite funny that you were saying like all these people were going to come down and speak to him. It, it's kind of funny that you get some people who who are uncomfortable with the the fact that Penske has a team in the championship and also owns the championship, and you know, however, church and state is separated. The the, the fact of the matter is that they are all connected, and that you've got someone who drives for Penske doing this kind of thing, like. It's 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 like the opposite of what like those people kind of argue with the whole kind of like oh they're all in it together kind of thing and he, Willie Peace is kind of out on his own own little like island isn't he uh, criticizing all of these like um, like criticizing the championship that his associated company also runs but I, I get the feeling that you were talking about kind of like arranging a sit down conversation all that sort of stuff he like spouts off about so many rules and so many things that are wrong with the IndyCar championship that I imagine that door's probably just closed or <laughs> there's like someone there's like someone who has to sit and listen to him you know rant off about these kind of things and then everyone just goes about their kind of normal business um, but yeah he's Will is such a an interesting character and these kind of moments are sometimes the kind of things that we wish there was more of in motorsport, like these more kind of emotional outbursts and sort of more kind of just, yeah, the, exactly that basically, more of an emotional outburst than you, you see from some of these drivers who are so well-trained these days and are so kind of in their bubble and so focused on their mindset and how they how they personally think about things, but also how they're supposed to show that they think about things um, for their teams and their sponsors and all that kind of stuff. Um it's it's refreshing but also quite worrying at the same time in terms of the precedent that it sets. So it'll be interesting to see whether this gets discussed any further. I don't think it will. I think it's one of those things that that you know people talk about for a little while and then kind of gets dust, dusted under the rug and we'll all just turn up at the next race, having not mentioned this again to anybody, um, and, and just carry on as normal. I just hope that at some point there's a part of me at least that hopes at some point this year that Will Power screws up Scott Dixon's session at some point and then Scott gives Will the double birds. That's all. That's all I want. That's all I want to see from this now. That was the other thing I was going to mention was that although Scott was immediately like protesting his innocence before Will was about to shove him, you kind of also got the feeling that Scott was just kind of expecting some sort of like, <laughs> not 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 maybe necessarily a shove, but like, and and the fact that Scott had kind of worked out what was happening before it had already happened, kind of situation. At least that's what it looked like to me totally. from the outside. Kind of shows what what people expect from <laughs> Will, and you know. Scott had said afterwards that he, you know, he'd got in the medical car with him and everything was fine. And once you'd kind of let him have that outburst, then it's fine. And I, I guess there's certain people you know after something's happened, you just have to leave them alone for a few minutes, uh, or, or just let them be angry, and then they kind of come back to come back to zero again. I guess I guess Will is one of those people. Anyway, talking about setting an example to younger drivers, we've not spoken about Indy Next a lot this year, um, mainly because we've not had that many races. Um, 
up up until recently, uh, which was something I wrote about earlier in the season. If you want to want to go and read about, I, I feel like the IndyCar silly season is at least starting earlier and earlier every year, and the fact that these Indian X drivers are going into the 500, which is where a lot of deals are done or started or initiated, having only done one or two races is a bit of an issue for those guys if they do want to start to play themselves into the conversation of, um, you know, being, in, you know, looking at IndyCar seats. Although the bigger question there is probably that most of the people who are going to get the IndyCar seats are the ones with a budget that they can worry about that later in the season. But anyway, that's a different debate altogether. Nolan Siegel has won the last two races. So I thought we should give him a shout out. The the HMD driver looking very strong. He's still very young despite having quite a quite a, well, a relatively young young junior single-seater career for his age so far. So I'm sure we'll get him on the pod in the near future. I'm hoping to speak to him this week, actually, about his recent form. So we'll report back on that for the next podcast. You can head to... Well, he should have won the last should have won the last three. Yes, because he had the, the gearbox issue on the last lap where he was overtaken at Detroit. Leading, leading in Detroit. Yeah, the doubleheader. You know, like two, one corner to go, basically. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty spectacular. Definitely a shout out to Nolan. Yeah, he's ripping it up. You can head to the-race.com for all of your latest IndyCar news, features, analysis, that sort of thing, including the weird Ganassi feature that I'm sure uh, people will hate or love. I'm not sure which, but uh, go back in the pod and listen to that uh, discussion with JR and had a bit earlier on and, and have that have a read and let us know what you think. You can email us, podcasts at the-race.com. You can send us uh, voice notes if you want questions, uh, including the podcast. You can send us written questions. You can send us suggestions, what you'd like to see more of on the pod. If there's any special guests you want to see on the show, we'll get them on, especially in the gaps uh, between races. Uh, Speaking of which, we have one now. We have an off weekend, and then we'll be back to mid-Ohio, another fabulous road course. So that'll be interesting. That's all for this week's episode of the Race IndyCar Podcast. The Athletic.